Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis during his time as teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We desire to see all who are Christ followers grow in faith and maturity through the use of this podcast. Here's this week's message. Well, they say that uh, ignorance is bliss, but I have a different proposition for you this morning. And that proposition is what you don't know can hurt you. As a county judge rediscovered once when he had a young drifter that came across his path in the courtroom, and uh, the offense that he had committed was that he had killed a bald eagle and eaten it. And of course the judge, being a strong American as well as a strong judge, was outraged at this. And uh, he began to lecture the young man, telling the young man that didn't he understand that an eagle was the symbol of our nation, it's part of our national heritage and pride. It's something that we look to as a, as a symbol of our country. And on top of that, didn't he understand that an eagle was an endangered species? Well, the young man <clears throat> listened to all that and after a while began to make a case for himself. He talked about the fact that he was drifting into town, that it had been several months since he had had a job. He hadn't eaten in quite a while, and on top of that, he had two kids to take care of. And as he went through that uh, rather mournful kind of dirge of his condition, he began to cry. And the judge was, was caught up in the kind of the hopeless condition of this young man and, and uh, really acted a little bit prematurely and suddenly just ordered a dismissal of the case uh, on grounds that uh, this guy had opted for kind of a higher calling in the midst of all that. So he slammed down the gavel and the courtroom began to clear. And as it did, the judge called the young drifter up to the bench and uh, kind of eased over and whispered in his ear. He said, you know, uh, I, I'm interested in, in knowing one thing. Uh, what, I'm just curious, what does a bald eagle taste like? <laughs> and the young drifter thought for a minute. He said, taste like? He said, oh, something between a hooping crane and a spotted owl. See, what you don't know can hurt you, right? In a much more, from a much more serious perspective, that wonderful Old Testament prophet, Hosea, was sent to a very prosperous, yet very deceived people of Israel. And his words that he spoke then are as relevant as if he would speak them today, even though he's speaking them from 710 B.C. He makes the case for what you don't know can hurt you. He goes through a series of prophetic denunciations against a people who soon, even though they were prosperous and everything like it would stay like it was and keep on being what it was, as he concludes this prophetic denunciation that the people of Israel would soon find was a reality, he says this, So, the people without understanding are ruined. The people without understanding are ruined. The word for ruin there is an old Hebrew word which literally means to thrust down. The people who are without understanding are thrust down. In other words, lacking insight into their situation or understanding of the social conditions of their day or a discernment in deciphering the times in which they lived of making sense out of probably what even for them then was a very complex situation Life and society was spiraling downward and they didn't know it. They were being thrust down toward ruin. What you don't know 
can hurt you. You probably already can tell that uh, we're starting a new series today to go along with the one that Bill and Bill are doing in the book of Esther. And I provided for you, don't get scared, a very lengthy outline in your bulletin. And uh, you might take that out at this time, but before we look at it, um, I want to tell you that I really believe the series that we're doing, both of them, are some of the most important statements that we'll make in your lifetime here at Fellowship Bible Church. Not just because of the subject matter that we're going to cover, but also because addressing these most relevant topics makes a statement in itself. And I want to give you three statements that it makes just to entertain this kind of material. The first is this. By addressing these crucial issues, we are presupposing on the front end that we can find answers. That's what we're presupposing on the front end. There are many people today who find our world overwhelming. It's too complex. The issues are too broad and too deep and too confusing. So why try? I think Hosea, again, offers a good measure of wisdom here. In chapter 5, he says, Ephraim, which is a name for Israel, Ephraim is oppressed. She is crushed in judgment because she was determined to follow nothingness. Now, I find that last word interesting. She was determined to follow as a nation nothingness. How do you follow nothingness? Well, you follow nothingness by not thinking and just by receiving everything that you hear on the radio, everything that you read in the newspaper, and everything that you see on TV. That is a mindless drifting through life where the issues go no deeper than a soundbite or a short news statement. And that is not enough. That is following nothingness. And as Hosea warns, to follow nothingness brings an oppression into the life of people. He says, in time, they will be crushed in their judgment. Why? Because they have no real substance to judge with. They have no real lens in which to filter truth from error or discern good from evil. That's why. So it's good that we're addressing these issues. And I am presupposing that we can find answers. Secondly, by addressing these critical issues, it makes a statement that we believe the church is not to withdraw from contemporary society, but we believe that it is to engage it. Now, I have no doubt that many of you are excited about the new series that we're beginning. We've talked about that, and some of you have expressed that excitement. But I want to address those in this moment who probably are reluctant at this point. You're not sure that you want to get into this kind of information. You already feel overwhelmed. And the last thing you want to do is talk about deep issues that make you get fearful or scare you or maybe even challenge some already existing opinions that you have. And what you would want to tell me at this moment is just preach the Bible. That's what I came to church to hear. Just preach the Bible. Well, to that response, let me just mention a couple of things. One, Martin Luther, who I think we can all look to who preached the Bible. But he made the statement with which I feel a certain kindredness, that if you preach the Bible accurately, you must preach it to the areas that touch people's lives every day. It's the issues that they're talking about. And if you don't preach to those points, you're not preaching the Bible, Martin Luther said. Karl Barth, who is one of the few evangelical German pastors to stand up against what he realized was a future terror, 
Hitler and Nazism, said this, The effective preacher is one with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. He saw them as going together. And I believe not addressing the key issues that everyone else is talking about through every other medium is an act of irresponsibility on the part of the Christian church. Thirdly, by the way we address these crucial issues, and I want to stress the word way, process, that we address these crucial issues, I hope the statement is made that we as Christians value facts over a predisposed prejudice. We've already got opinions, but that we value facts even above our predisposed disposition, whether it came from the way we grew up, the place we grew up, the people who talked to us, or the group we ran with. That we value facts over those things and a compassionate spirit over a condemning one. I don't know, and I don't care. Those are the two greatest enemies of the church today. I don't know, and I don't care. And I would hope that this series, if done rightly, would present a process of thinking and of concluding that would help you in a complex world with complex issues. First starting with facts and research and then moving to conclusions that we can defend articulately, not within the church, because we're talking to ourselves, but we can defend in the public square in a way that people who don't embrace the faith or the revelation that we hold dear can at least understand us and hear us talking out of compassion and love. That's what I'm talking about. And then it would conclude not just with talk, but it would conclude with acts of love, with deeds of compassion that would be winsome to our society rather than repulsive to it. So with that said, let me ask you to look at the outline that I gave you and let me mention the title of the series, as you can see, is Brave New Church in a Bold New World. And you'll hear more about that through the rest of the message. But there are three parts that I'll be walking us through. Part one will be the issues that confront us. Uh, that will include two messages, one of which I'm using today to introduce us to this series. And then next uh, time that I speak, which is two weeks from today, we will entertain what I believe are the eight most vital issues facing us as Christians today that we need some awareness of and what that means for our lives on a day-to-day -day basis. Then we'll take those perspectives that have been affording us and we'll carry it into part two where we talk about the opportunities that surround us. Now, most people think of the issues that I'm going to speak about as the issues of part one, but actually it's going to be opportunities, opportunities with the lost, opportunities with the feminist, opportunities with the homosexual, opportunities with the lost, opportunities with families, opportunities within exploitation, opportunities on a host of fronts that we see and deal with every day. But I want us to deal with them well and well-researched and well-concluded. And we'll talk about how to get there. And then finally, in part three, we will, we will take all of that information and all those opportunities that we talked about and bring them down to some practical application in the ministries that engage us. And hopefully, with the vision that you've been given, it will empower many of you not to do everything, because we can't do everything and we can't take on all these issues. None of us can. But it might empower you to do one thing really well. And if our church does a lot of one things well, we make a big difference in the world in which we live. And you'll hear more about that as we go on. Now at the heart of this series is a sim simple, very simple postulate 
that is to me the central proposition, and I've given it to you in your outline, which I think is the heart of this series and around which everything is based. And I put it in an if-then type proposition, and I want to read it to you. It says, if it is true that our world is in a great transition and a new world is being birthed, fundamentally different from the one to which we have been accustomed, then we can either mindlessly surrender to these currents of change and let them take us wherever they will with whatever consequences, or we can discern our times and set about to deliberately act to establish a way of life within this transitional state which redeems our lives, our communities, and glorifies God. The last two words, glorifies God, is really the central theme of all of humanity and history as we know. But to do that in a way requires people who can discern their times and know what to do. Like David, when he brought a certain tribe around him, when he took the kingdom from Saul, he brought the men of Issachar who understood, it says, their, their times, and they also knew what Israel should do in the midst of all those complex choices. That's who we need to become as the church. You know, the record floods that are occurring in the Midwest and have been occurring now for some weeks, they really become a pictorial of this postulate. They kind of are, are a physical image of what I'm talking about. They are called not just a 100-year flood, but it's a 500-year flood, a once-in-a-500-year period of time and have affected those states of Iowa and Illinois and Missouri and others. But when you watch the people, you see kind of what I'm talking about in a from a physical perspective, what I'll be addressing in a spiritual perspective. For some of those people, as those torrential rains fell and those waters rose, they just simply automatically surrendered their fate to those waters, took what they could, and left. There were others in that same period of time who felt no, we're going to stay and try to fight this thing. And they gave a good effort for a while. But then when the odds kept mounting against them, there came a place where they too left. But then there are a few. And we've seen those few somewhat illustrated on TV night after night as heroes that stood with courage and determination, who believed there was something worth fighting for, something worth preserving after the transitions that those floodwaters would bring, and they have stayed and fought it day in and day out, and they haven't given up, and they intend to see this thing through. And we marvel at them. Now, the analogy is not perfect because certain floods you can't do anything about and you have to flee. But I use that only to give a pictorial of the age in which we live when the floodwaters of change are sweeping over every levee, every social institution, every value system that you've ever known. And now you have some choices to make. You can surrender yourself to the fate of those currents. Let them take you wherever they want, wherever they will, and they'll take you there. Or you can determine that there is something worth preserving, something worth carrying through. Not that we're going to move our society backwards. It's going to be a changed society. But there are certain things that need to be carried forth, namely the glory of God and His kingdom. And I intend to be determined to preserve those things for my children and my children's children, not just simply live for myself. And that's what we're talking about. So let's look at that postulate for just a moment and explore it a little deeper. The question is, is our world truly in a great transition? Well, Bill Parkinson started us off 
last week mentioning that we were, and I have read for months now, all kinds of social analysts, historians, and theologians, and there is a, a, a unique agreement, harmony among these great thinkers that our world isn't in a small transition. It isn't even in a 100-year transition. It is in a 500-year transition. Leonard Sweet, who's a great theologian from the Northeast, says it emphatically. He says, the world as you and I know it has come to an end, period. Now, you may not feel like it's come to an end, but they're stating it has come to an end. In fact, he goes on to say that there was a place when the ancient world, around 400 A.D., began to give way its customs, its social customs, its institutions, its value systems, its way of life to a new world called the medieval world. And that medieval world lasted for a thousand years. And there came a place where that medieval world with its social institutions and its customs and its values and its way of life, its small feudal states, its lack of any kind of coherent national system, its knights and its kings, its peasants and its serfs, gave way with the Renaissance and the Reformation to what we now call the modern world. And now 500 years later, there's a flood occurring. And theologians and social analysts, historians, cultural experts, they're all saying that this 500 years has come to an end. And a new world right now is being birthed. And our values and our social institutions and our customs are going to disappear and evaporate and condense into a new world altogether. British journalist and scholar Gibba Adair believes that this new age has not yet arrived, that though our modern age is over, we're in a sense in a moment of suspension in which we're waiting for the new world to be birthed. And what it is and what it will become, we don't know. But he says that when modernisms, and I got the quote on your outline, earnest principles and preoccupations have ceased to function but have not yet been replaced by a totally new system, and that hasn't occurred yet. It does represent a moment of suspension before the batteries are recharged for the new millennium, an acknowledgement that, the pre that preceding the future is a strange and hybrid interregnum. Now, that's a big word, which just simply means a pause. And that's what he's saying. We're in a pause between one reign of the modern world and the reign of the next world that has not yet come, that's still being determined, and there are going to be change agents determining that, but who are those change agents going to be? But we are in this suspended pause, and he calls it the last gasp of the past. I like to compare it to the month of October. Now, I, mean, I enjoyed being in Poland the month of July wearing coats and sweaters. But I, I don't like the oppressive heat just like you don't. And I always look forward to that wonderful month. It's my favorite month, October and part of November, where things begin to change. There are those brilliant hues, those dazzling scenes that are all around us, especially where there are a lot of hardwoods like here in Arkansas. And if you didn't know any better, you would think the season that was birthed back in March and April is just going forward in a more bolder and grander scheme. But see, we know the seasonal cycles. And we know that October is a fraud, that it's not getting better, that in reality, that nature is just about to die before it births again, right? Well, that's a good metaphor for the world in which we live. October, in a sense, 
is in reality an aging, reckless playboy having one last fling and going out in a blaze of glory. And I say that because October is the spirit of our age and it has infected many, many Christians. Deep down, we sense things are changing. I, I talk to people all over and all over the world. We sense there's some fundamental and profound changes about to take place, but many of us opt for an October syndrome rather than prepare ourselves deliberately for the new world. And rather than do that, we go out in one last glorious fling, enjoying ourselves, expending ourselves, mindlessly putting away all the changes that are being made, nostalgically remembering the way it used to be as if it was going to go on forever and blowing it out before it all comes crashing down. In the 1890s, 1890s, who could have imagined the world of the 20th century? I'm just going to take you back 100 years. That's not really that far. We still have some people who lived in the 1890s. But in the 1890s, Britain stood alone as the world's preeminent power. It was an empire. It was said that the sun never sets on the British Empire. I saw that again when I stood in uh, the Cathedral of Notre Dame, and there's a plaque there to the British soldiers who died in France in World War I. And there were all the crests of the British Empire, not a singular little island, but New Zealand and Canada and Australia and India. The sun never set on the British Empire. And during the time of the 1890s, and even as you moved into the 20th century, the parties that occurred all over England in the, in the, in the turn of this new century were those of relishing in the absolute power of Britain over the world. America a hundred years ago was mostly rural farm country. The majority of the people who inhabited this country were Protestants. And they were Protestant evangelicals. They had just gone through a number of major national revivals. It was a point of the close of the Victorian age. And people were profoundly moral, almost to a fault in that sense. 75% of our population in 1890 was of British or Irish descent. We were a monogamous culture. And if people had understood what was about to occur, I don't know what they would have thought. If they could have been told, in and around the 1890s, change agents were already at work. In America, there was about to explode a massive immigration policy that would forever change the population mix. And we're experiencing some of those same stresses as illegal aliens flood over our borders. People move from the farm to the city. In 1890s, Charles Darwin's theories were beginning to be adopted in intellectual circles, in churches, and in seminaries. And as a result, biblical authority was undermined in the 1890s when evangelicals filled churches all over the world. In the 1890s, a psychologist by the name of Sigmund Freud was coming on the scene, and he would soon liberate the 20th century from many of the moral restraints the Victorian age had imposed. Many people were just now beginning to embrace the theories of a man by the name of Karl Marx, who proposed a new society where there would be everyone at work, and everyone would have according to their means. And it would take an entire generation and millions and millions of people 
and they're doomed to prove him wrong. Albert Einstein had just introduced the theory of relativity in which people would begin to believe that what he meant was everything was relative in life. The industrial age was about to break forth and the names in the 1890s sprinkled through that decade and into the early part of the 1900s were names like Thomas Edison and Henry Ford and Orwell and Wilbur Wright. Who could have imagined that world in 1890? And can you imagine the children born in 1890 wondering about their parents' world back then? How primitive, how restrained. Did you know we stand at the same crosswords? There's some eerie parallels between the 1890s and the 1990s, just 100 years later. And we have no idea about what is to be. But America in 1993 looks frighteningly similar to the British Empire of 1893. Preeminent among the world's power, but it stands preeminent with clay feet and in with a precarious stance with major cracks in our foundation, both morally and nationally. That's America. And as those people in Britain said all kinds of wonderful things about their empire in 1893, those cracks were already there in their empire as well. And they disappeared. The reality is, is that everything today is up for grabs. A new world is coming, and our children will live in it. And our children's children, our grandchildren, will eat of it. And we, the generation now in charge for most of us here, we will either surrender to it and be swept away to whatever port it takes us, or we will help shape it. We will act, or we will be acted upon. We will call it fate, or see it, as an opportunity, but there is a bold new world coming. And your children will look at this day and age, not as Americans probably, but by some alignment and confederation of nations, who knows what the name is going to be. And they will sit in their rooms and do all their business with a little computer and fax and whatever other 3D dimensional objects they'll have all over the world. And all the boundaries will come down. And who knows what that will mean as people mix globally. But there's a bold new world coming. And we have to decide whether we're going to surrender to it or make a difference in it. Now let me explore that word surrender because we as Southern evangelicals, we have a heritage of surrender. We know a lot about surrender and I'm not talking about the Civil War. I'm talking about the moral war that preceded the Civil War. It's part of our history. When confronted with the issue of slavery in the 1850s, Southern preachers and Southern theologians lost their nerve. They surrendered to the economic pressures of the society around them and even in time ended up affirming the stance of the Southern states against the oppression of blacks with a doctrine that they called the spirituality of the church. Let me tell you what that means. Or let me read Professor C.C. Gowen of the University of Georgia. He says what it means. He writes, Converts were taught in the southern states to strive for mastery of their own lives. Beyond that, they received no guidance on how their religion, religious commitments could affect social roles that were defined by race, sex, or power. Now, to put that in our terms today, they were told that what churches were for were to equip people for life, but not for service. Master your own life. We're here to help you live better, marry better, 
use your money better, etc., etc. But let's don't talk about anything beyond just equipping you to have a good life. Gowen goes on to say, by casting morality in purely individualistic terms, Southern evangelicals place the institution of slavery beyond the reach of Christian social concern. Slavery was in their insistent refrain from the pulpit, purely a civil matter. And so the Christian faith in the South was privatized, pulled out of the marketplace of life as if it had no place there, no interest there, no involvement there. And how many died to find out they were wrong? If they could have just learned from their Christian brothers across the sea. Because just a few years before, across the ocean, a group of Christian evangelicals led by William Wilberforce led a movement where he spoke boldly in Parliament, in the marketplace, to the populace about the evils of slavery and the oppression of blacks. And though it took him almost 50 years, he finally convinced England to outlaw slavery and to release them and to make them equal with the rest of the populace. And when that occurred, they avoided a bloody civil war. And to this day, if you go to England, they will look back not on Christians, but a brand of Christians, evangelical Christians, as having saved them for what we experienced, a war. And they stand as a tribute to the faith rather than a shame to the faith. This summer, while I was on my uh, missions trip in Poland, I had the opportunity to take my family to Auschwitz, the Nazi concentration camp that's there in southern Poland. Uh, I went with Bill Wellens several years before in the dead of winter, but I went this time in the heat of summer, but it is still a chilling place to see. To walk through those grounds and to see that barbed wire, to look at the ovens as a reminder of what man can do to man when he becomes mindless. To think of the children who, the minute they stepped off those boxcars, their fate was sealed when they were directed to the right and into the showers. And I thought to myself, how could evangelical Christians not do something about this. There's a number of articles and books you can read to answer that question because the evangelical church in Germany was a very prosperous and strong church. Groups huddled together for Bible studies. There were seminars. There were outreaches. All that was going on in Germany pre-World War II. So what happened? You know, when you walk through the gates of Auschwitz, there's a big iron sign over the top that was there from the very beginning. It says, work makes you free. It was a propaganda statement. It was to say that this was a work camp and that people who came here worked. They worked hard enough they'd go free. Of course, it was all a lie. It was all propaganda. And you'd wonder how you could be shipping thousands and thousands of Jews and Russians and gypsies to these camps and it not grow that big. Millions. But you know, out there in evangelical Germany, they were thinking it was a work camp. And I remember standing on those grounds and asking myself this question. Didn't anybody, even early on, ask the question, could you tell me what goes on at a work camp? What happens to the people in the work camp? When I asked that question, how could that happen? You know, my heart said it this way back to me. It said that they probably live with the same collective coping techniques 
we use when we hear the term fetal research. Does anybody know here what goes on in fetal research? Does anybody know what it takes to gather and harvest fresh fetal material, the freshest and the best? Does anybody know the process that goes on there? Isn't it strange that our president stands in a rose garden and signs the fetal research bill with people clapping, and most of us just go into collective amnesia thinking, it's fetal research. It's a work camp. And we put it aside. Fetal research, work camp, words like that let us surrender our minds to the currents of change and be swept away to whatever end it'll bring. But Hosea has already told us. This prophet 2,700 years ago says, the people, without understanding, they're ruined. They're going to be thrust down. You can surrender or you can discern how you would act. And I've given on your outlines two models of what I call engagement for our changing world. The first is called a reaction model. And as you see there, and by the way, I fit in both these models to my shame at times. The reaction model is what I think is driven by the need of comfort. Now, we don't speak a lot about comfort, but there it is. Uh, behind the scenes, driven by the need of comfort. And that comfort leads us not to think through issues, but over time, it helps us to formulate compromises that then end in us acting in error or in apathy or perhaps even in avoidance. The research model that I'm going to propose as the heart of this series, the one that we'll take every issue through, is the one that approaches things saying, well, I know how I feel and I'm scared to death and I'd like to get out of here, but what I'd like to know is what are the facts? Help me with the facts. And you can help me with the facts from your experience. We can collect those. But it starts first with facts because its interest is not in comfort, though all of us want to be comfortable, but it's interested in character. Just like so many kids are raised today and the only thing their parents envision for them is that, you know, they're going to be well-educated, make money, and have fun. That's comfort. When Rome became an empire, its parents wanted their kids to go off into war and don't come back unless you come back on a shield. That's character. There's a difference there. There was something worth preserving and dying for. And character is worth that. And so you get all this truth together and you formulate a conviction based on facts that are thought through. Not alone, never alone, but with a company of people hammering at it from all their different expertise and feelings and experiences until you say, this is right. We need to do something. And then it should finish, not in just going out and doing anything, but in going out and being articulate in the world in a way that they can understand it with purposeful action that reeks of love and compassion. Now let me just take one issue that we're all experiencing here today. Violence. Violence. We all have a, a reaction to violence. I do. You know, I could walk the streets of Europe much safer than I can walk the streets of Little Rock. So I feel this violence. I see it on the newspaper. I hear it on TV and the radio every day. How do you do that? Well, the reaction model, it wants to get afraid. It wants to say, man, things are out of control. It's a discomfort to me that I can't go downtown. I have to drive around because I'm afraid of going through a part of town. So that formulates the need for comfort, and that comfort oftentimes, and not thinking things through, then comes up with just generalizations. It's a certain group of people that's the problem. 
We need to corral that group of people. We need more police to wall them off down there. See? Or maybe what I need to do is I need to, you know, uh, 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 begin to, to voice my complaint and tell somebody else to go do something. Uh, because, because that group, they're the problem. And I start bordering on racism or more, bigotry. And so my error, my actions finish in error, apathy, or avoidance. I either want to say, well, you know, it's getting too scary here, so I'm going to go move to another community. I'm going to move further out in the suburbs. Or I'm going to build my wall a little higher around my house. Or I'm going to move to a neighborhood where they've got a guardhouse, where you have to pass through there. Put up an electric fence. Buy a gun. Do those things. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't places to protect yourself, especially in a violent society. But if that's all we do, hear me. That's irresponsible because it's not going to make anything go away. It's deeding to our kids a violent society that one day they won't be able to build the walls high enough or put enough electric fence around it or buy enough guns. A research model says, I need to think this through. I don't need to be, as Romans 12, 2 says, conformed to this world, that surrender. I need to be transformed. How? By the renewing of my mind. I need accuracy. I need to think it through. I need to see myself as part of a redemptive community that's going to make a difference, not just escape. So I come to convictions that are rooted in thoughts that are really well-founded and well-grounded, and that leads me to purposeful action. I might protect myself, but I might now discover the roots of violence and begin to vote in legislation that addresses those. I may begin to form groups that help reach out to people who need our help or they'll never escape that environment. I need to create alternatives and get involved. That's redemptive. That's the difference. That's the world you live in. I want you to burn this research model into your mind because as we go through all the issues through the months ahead, we will move through that grid. Research, search for truth, conviction, and then what are those actions that we need to move to? Now, we can't, I'm not asking you to do everything, so don't get overwhelmed. But I'm asking you to think with me, to be a people with understanding. And if we're a people with understanding and with conviction, then we'll obtain what I call the golden compass for the 21st century. It's a personal item, this golden compass. It's going to be more valuable to you, trust me, than all the money you make or all the time that we say is so valuable to people in the 90s. It's the key also to the brave new church of the future. And that gold compass can be summed up in a biblical word, and that word is discernment. Discernment. There are three things I want you to know about acquiring discernment. It will require humility, it will require prayer, and it will require a faithful allegiance and adherence to the Word of God, regardless of the circumstances that happen to us, regardless of whatever climate that we're in, no matter how desperate or prosperous. We have to demonstrate that we believe that the Word of God is true, and then the Word of God will prove that it is true. I love what David wrote, because David was a man in love with the Word of God in Psalm 119, 89. He said, Forever thy word stands firm. And the longer I go in life, with all the different choices and seductions and temptations and transitions, many though they may be, the thing that I can say and testify, the Word of God stands firm. 
And after everything else is gone, including America, the Word of God will stand. That's why when you go to Europe, I mean, when we lived in Wrocław this summer, Wrocław just a few years before was Breslau, Germany. It wasn't even Wrocław. It was Germany. It's where they held part of the Olympic Games in 36. And hundreds of years before that was Poland again. And they have watched the Austrian-Hungarian Empire rise up. They've watched Germany rise up that was going to control the whole world. They've gone back and forth. But you know what hadn't changed in Breslau slash Wrocław? The church. It's there. I had chills up my back when I, the last night before we left, I walked through. And there outside the old city walls is this little church to lepers. And it's been there for 500 years. And it's still working. You want to be a part of an institution that will never pass away and that is worth preserving in this great transition, then you can't surrender. You've got to discern and act and be a part of the brave new church that's entering the bold new world. Now, you know, we have a great illustration of a guy in the midst of transition. I'm going to ask you to turn to 1 Kings just for a moment. 1 Kings chapter 3. And here's this great transition of political kingdoms from the hand of David to the hand of Solomon. And so there's a transition occurring here. But in this short passage, Solomon demonstrates every one of these things. And though his, his reign ultimately fumbled at the end, for most of it, it was a very powerful reign. And we get to see why. Because for most of the reign of Solomon, he carried the golden compass. And you'll see it in these verses, starting in verse 6. Then Solomon said, Thou hast shown great loving kindness to thy servant David my father according as he walked before thee in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart towards thee. And thou hast reserved for him this great loving kindness and thou hast given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. And now notice what he does. And now, O Lord my God, thou hast made thy servant king in place of my father David. Boy, there's a great transition here. And then notice what he says. Yet I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. You hear the humility there? A king uttering these words. But see, he was on the road to discernment. Because discernment starts with humility, saying, I don't know it all. And you don't know it all, and I don't know it all. And I want to admit that from the beginning. These issues are complex. They are vast. And I'm going to work hard at distilling down essences for you. But the bottom line is for each one of us, it starts with us saying, you know, I'm at square one in this great transition and I want to learn. God, help me. And He will. Notice it says, it goes on in verse 8, And thy servant in the midst of this great people which thou hast chosen, this great people, cannot be numbered or be counted for multitude. And then he says, So give thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people, to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of thine? See, he goes from humility, then he asks a prayer. Help me. And it's not going to come from just facts. It's going to come from this humble spirit that reaches up to a living God and says, help me discern. And he promises to help you do that. To help you know good from bad, right from wrong, evil from righteousness. He'll help you. But I want you to watch God here, listening to this young man. It says in verse 10, And it was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. And God said to him, Because you have asked this thing and have not asked for yourself, see, selfishness, nor have you asked for a long life, security, nor have you asked riches for yourself, wealth and comfort, 
Nor have you asked for life, the life of your enemies, power. But you have asked for yourself discernment to understand justice. Behold, I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart. But then I want you to notice what God does. It's not all just subjective through His Spirit answering this prayer. God issues an ultimatum to Solomon at the end of this moment in time. Look at verse 14. He says, And Solomon, if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and commandments. You don't have to guess about them. They're written down. And here we are through hundreds of kingdoms, hundreds of empires, and hundreds of nations that have come and gone with pomp and ceremony. And what do we have? We still have that word. It stands firm. He says, if you'll do this, if you'll keep my statutes and commandments as your father David walked, then I will prolong your days. If you want discernment, it requires humility, prayer, and an absolute faithful adherence to the Word of God, regardless of the circumstances, the day, the hour, or the fact that you're in the midst of a flood that's going over every social levy in this life. Now let me quickly give you three powerful abilities that come from having discernment. The first is this. It will empower you to make smart choices. In the midst of a world that doesn't know what to do, you'll be able to make smart choices. We have more opportunities and choices than ever before. But as I think one social critic observed so well, he said this, and I quote, though the choices are more numerous, genuine choices are narrower and harder to make. How do you make the right choices in the midst of so much? There are so many opportunities with glitz and glamour and fake promises, and they all look good. There's only one way you can navigate that maze and have a successful outcome on the other end with a prolonged days and being a difference maker and a change agent for your children and your children's children. It's called discernment. Secondly, it will enable you to instruct your children. And when I say instruct your children, most of us are used to telling our children what to do, but not why to do it. And discernment is a way of life in which you help your children understand the why, not just the what. The process to think through the issues they're facing and to instill in them another generation a way of thought power that's not only inspirational but redemptive. But you have to be that. You have to model that kind of teachability, humility, and the ability to learn. But it's there for you. And it's in this book. Thirdly, it will equip you to engage a pluralistic culture with confidence and compassion. Listen to Proverbs 16.21. It says, The wise in heart will be called discerning, and sweetness of speech will increase their persuasiveness. See, when you know why you believe, not just what you believe, and you know why you believe it, not just what you believe, then it increases the sweetness of your speech. You know why? Because you approach people with a compassionate spirit because you are no longer threatened by their arguments. You're no longer trying to convince yourself by arguing with them. That's where most people are. They're trying to out-argue the guy so they feel like I'm right. They don't know they're right. But when you know what you believe and you've thought through it with a consensus of godly people, what that does is it makes you look at the other person not as a person that you have to convince to feel good about yourself, but you look at that other person as a person who's on their way of being thrust down and you desperately love them and want to help them, and you don't want them swept away in the currents of change. It increases the sweetness of speech. 
And in the bold new world we are entering, the brave new church is not going to be an arrogant bully because we don't have the forces to be an arrogant bully to begin with. The religious right of the 80s tried that and they failed and left a bitter taste in a lot of secular people. In the new century, we must replace arrogance with compassion and our conclusions must be demonstrated with a persuasiveness of sweet speech and proof out of our own life. Otherwise, they won't hear us. That's just fact of the world in which we live. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.